Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our sermon text for this morning is from the Old Testament lesson from the prophet Isaiah, the 61st chapter. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through the whole song. I see you know it pretty well, and I think you get the idea. Legend has it, and some good historical research bears it out, that this song, as secular as it might sound on the surface, was actually written for Christian instruction in a time when citizens in England were not allowed to openly practice the Catholic faith, that is, the, the Roman Catholic faith. Englishmen were not always Anglicans, you know. Early on in the Christian era, the various kings and queens of England adopted their own preferred religion, sometimes on the basis of what would give them the best political advantage as much as it was based on the steerings of their hearts. For quite a while, they vacillated between the Roman Catholic and the Anglican confessions, and at times there were, there were even some strong Lutheran influences. Eventually, though, the Church of England finally overcame the Church of Rome as the approved royal religion. And there was pressure and there was even some widespread and very severe persecution leveled against those who wanted to remain in the Pope's church. The stanzas of the 12 days of Christmas were code, if you will, for the various gifts that God has given to His people. Our true love, of course, is God, the one who gives us the various gifts. And the partridge in the pear tree is Jesus Christ, whom He gave as a sacrifice for us on the tree of the cross. The two turtle doves were the Old and New Testaments. And the three French hens were the virtues of faith, hope, and love. So on and so forth. The song, as well as being instructive in the giving nature of God, also emphasizes that general practice of giving gifts to those we care about at Christmas time. This is a tradition which we in America in the 21st century are all quite familiar, even those out there who don't have a clue about the Word becoming flesh in a virgin, the Savior of the world being born in a podunk town, the Son of the Most High being delivered in a barn. Yes, at Christmas it seems that Almost everyone, Christian or not, gives gifts to family and friends and sometimes even to those who are just business associates. Occasionally, if we're moved to genuine generosity toward those who can't reciprocate to us, Americans might even give to complete strangers. After all, it is the season of giving. For Christians, we hope that our attitude toward giving and toward receiving gifts is set apart a little bit from the ordinary. Confessing as we do, we realize that God is not only the Creator, but also the ultimate giver of all things, visible and invisible, and especially of the most important gifts, those of the forgiveness of sins, salvation from death and the devil, and the gift of eternal life 
Still, the practice of giving gifts at Christmas time is symbolic of the wise men bringing their tributes of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Bethlehem to honor Jesus, the newborn king, at his birth. The practice of giving gifts to loved ones at Christmas time, however, didn't really get started too much until the medieval era. And then various countries and various peoples began to make gift-giving a regular part of the Holy Day celebrations over a period of time. By the time the Americas were settled by Europeans, giving gifts at Christmas was practiced by a pretty good portion of the settlers. The early Dutch in New Amsterdam, for example, and elsewhere around North America and even South America, introduced St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus, to the New World. On the other hand, the early French and English settlers, they were more likely to give gifts at New Year's or even at Epiphany. Ultimately, however, a common Christmas culture developed not only in this nation, but also eventually in much of Europe, at which gifts were given at Christmas time. In the 19th century, the idea of a gift-giving took on new dimensions as the works of another Englishman, not a king, but a writer, Charles Dickens, and many others, helped to shape our modern concept of Santa Claus and of the giving of gifts at this time of the year. All of this is simply to say that the practice of giving gifts at Christmas time is a deep-rooted tradition in our culture. Now, I would not be so Scrooge-like as to suggest that we should stop giving gifts out of fear that we'll lose Christ and we'll lose the true meaning of Christmas. As long as God allows, we know that His Word and His name will be confessed by faithful believers, and the true message will be proclaimed if only by a remnant of humanity. I would say, however, that as we give gifts to others at this time and it becomes incumbent upon us as Christians to remember and to remind one another that this season that is coming upon us is not primarily about what we give to others or even what we give to God. Rather, it's about what God gives to us. The title of this message this morning is Sometimes It Is Better to Receive Than to Give. That phrase, of course, kind of overturns or reverses the well-remembered biblical principle and guidance that it is better to give than to receive. I would maintain, however, that this phrase, especially in the spiritual sense, is still quite biblical. When is it better to receive than to give? Even speaking from our flesh, from our sinful nature, we'd likely say that it is probably better to receive than to give when the gift that we receive is bigger and better and more valuable the one that we give. For example, if their commercials are to be believed, the automobile manufacturer Lexus would seek to convince us that it's better to receive than to give when our spouse goes out and buys a new Lexus for us as a surprise. Now, wouldn't you rather really receive a Lexus than give one? <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't want a bright, shiny, new red Lexus for Christmas? Still, despite the allure and the insatiable desires of our flesh, there is also a spiritual time when it is much better to receive than to give. I would draw your attention this morning once again to the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 61. 
Isaiah is one of those many prophets who had a a pretty tough message to bring to God's people. In Isaiah's day, people were turning away from God. They were following after other gods. They were making alliances with pagan kings. They were trusting in themselves much more than they were trusting in their Lord Yahweh. Isaiah told them that the rebellion would not be allowed to go on much longer. God would send a marauding army down from the north to Jerusalem to chasten her and to direct her back to God. And in 586 B.C., this prophecy was fulfilled. The Babylonians, those who occupied modern-day Iraq, swooped down upon Judah from the north. They destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and they drove most of the Jews out of the Holy Land. In that case, what the people received from God was exactly what they needed. A chastening. A firm hand of discipline. As Isaiah warned the people of what was to come though, he also told them that God would not forsake them. That He would finally redeem them. And that He would forgive their rebellious ways. And that He would, by His own grace and mercy, make them acceptable in His sight. We pick up in Isaiah 61 where the prophet begins to tell the children of Israel what it is that God has planned for them after they had been driven out of Jerusalem. Take a look at the latter portion of that reading for this morning, especially in verses 10 and 11. Isaiah writes, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And then, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden cause what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Now, Nothing is really ever insignificant in the Scriptures, of course, but there is something particularly significant about these verses. Notice the verbs here. Who is doing the action in these verbs? Listen again. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. When God speaks to us in this way, when He comes to give us a garment of salvation, a robe of righteousness, it is most certainly better for us to receive than to give. In fact, when God speaks words of mercy and grace here, pure as they can be, there is really nothing that we can give. God's grace is complete. It is absolute. It is perfect. It lacks nothing, and consequently, nothing can really be added to it. Our reaction to God's actions in this case, in His giving us these blessed, marvelous gifts, ought to be the same as what Isaiah said here. To delight greatly in the Lord, and for our souls to rejoice in our God. He is the one who takes the significant action to generate the truly important results. 
And we are merely to accept them, to enjoy them, to revel in them, and to give thanks for them. Certainly when we engage with our fellow man here on earth, even with our brothers and sisters in Christ, God does call us to give. Thus, it is better to give and receive then. Your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, your fellow students and fellow workers, and even strangers, they need you, dear Christians. You who have been moved, you who have been shaped anew by God. These neighbors, both near and far, they do need you. Love them as you love yourself. But when you turn to God, there really isn't anything that you can give. Rather, He comes to serve you, as Jesus said. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Within these hallowed walls here, God has come once again to serve you, to clothe you with the garments of salvation, to give you the robe of His Son's righteousness. There's an awful lot of goofiness out there today in the world of worship, and sometimes it even happens in Lutheran circles. In Sweden, for example, there's parishioners who can choose among a hip-hop mass and a jazz mass and even a techno mass. But what can be obscured in such silliness and in such self-directed disunity from the rest of Christ's church is the God who gives us His gifts. The God who comes to us with such simple and yet incredibly profound and gracious words. Take and eat. Take and drink. I forgive you all your sins. I have bought you at a price, you are mine. Indeed, then, there are times when it is better to receive than to give. That robe of righteousness that you have received from Christ looks pretty good on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.